0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to talk to some old friends on today's show and have some fun doing it. KDVS's own Tara Esfie will come to speak with us about uh, her piece on uh, recycling food and such. It was in the Sacramento News and Review. We'll also talk to our old pal Jerry Rose about eclipse chasing, as promised a few weeks back. But let us begin today's program, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 7th of June. It was on June 7th in 1494... As Spain and Portugal vie for dominance in sea exploration and a rush to claim new lands that they, quote, discover, unquote, Pope Alexander VI granted Spain exclusive rights to all lands south and west of a point 100 leagues west of the Azores. The Treaty of Tordesillas refined the line of demarcation and moved it 270 leagues farther west. This is all some rather imprecise measuring uh, and some uh, ridiculous politics. But a consequence of this was that in Brazil, to this day, they speak Portuguese, whereas in the rest of Latin America, they speak Spanish. And because we knew you'd ask, we looked up how long a league was and uh, originally referred to the distance that a person or a horse could walk in an hour. In other words, about three miles. And it was on June 7th in 1654 that Louis XIV, the Sun King, who would create the magnificent palace at Versailles, was crowned in France. And as you may recall from our talk with astronomy columnist, I guess, Bob Berman, a few weeks back, I guess a couple months back by now, the reign of Louis XIV coincided with an absence of sunspots. And in spite of the fact that he was called the Sun King, that was a complete. Coincidence. I guess otherwise he would have been known as the Sunspot King. On this date in 1905, Norway and Sweden dissolved the political union that had linked their fates since 1814. And I gotta say, having been to both countries, Norwegians and Swedes are quite different. On this date in 1913, Hudson Stuck, a longtime Episcopalian missionary in Alaska, planted the American flag at the summit of Mount McKinley. His was judged to be the first credible claim to scale the highest point at 20,500 feet on the American continent, in part because he was recognized as an accomplished mountaineer who had climbed in the highest peaks of the Alps and Rockies. I remember reading a magazine piece some years back about the first man who had a widely accepted claim of climbing Mount McKinley was a big old fake. He produced photographs of himself planting uh, the flag on the summit and I know researchers went back years later and found the little hill somewhere on the flanks of the mountain that he tried to use as his uh, summit. I don't remember the details of the story. If you remember the details of this particular story, please drop us a line at info at There was an awful lot of fakery that went on in those early explorers. Robert Byrd never flew to the pole. Frederick Cook came up with a cockamamie story by going to the North Pole. He, he never really got even very far off from the ice flow. And there's some that say, with excellent cause, that Admiral Perry was not the first guy to get to the North Pole either. We should do a whole show on that someday. Maybe we will. On June 7th, 1929, the Vatican, the seat of Roman Catholicism, which had long had a troubled relationship with its host country, Italy, was granted sovereignty when the Lateran Treaty took effect which is why this, I don't know, X number of acres piece of land inside of Rome is considered a sovereign country with its own postage stamps, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and even has a non-voting seat at the United Nations to this day. On June 7th, of 1939, King George VI and his daughter, the future Queen Elizabeth, becomes the first reigning British monarch to visit England's former colony, the United States. On June 7, 1965, the U.S. Supreme Court removed restrictions on prescribing and selling birth control pills, which had been approved by the FDA five years earlier. And finally, on June 7, 1966, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood actor, won the Republican nomination for governor of California, the first of what were to be many political triumphs for Ronald Reagan. Alright, right, I want to note before we go on with the rest of the program that I hope you checked out the transit of Venus on Tuesday. Because, of course, if you missed it, you won't get another shot at it till the year 2117. I was rather impressed to note that uh, trying to look at Venus on the sun through welder's glasses, well, it was just a barely visible dot. But projecting it through even like a 20x scope, and binoculars would have worked as well, did a pretty good job of projecting an image onto a screen that uh, showed our twin planet very clearly. I do want to include in this a bit of a dope slap for the people over at Cal State University, Sacramento, who did advertise themselves as having a a viewing session for the transit of Venus, which was a very admirable goal. I want to thank them for trying. But when yours truly uh, went over to uh, Antelope Hall, I guess it was, to, to check it out, up on the roof, they had four telescopes set out, and no one thought to project an image onto a screen, meaning that you were either standing there in the bright sunlight wishing you had something as a my protection to look up, or you had to be at a telescope at the eyepiece looking at it in turn with a large throng of people to see anything. This was really dumb. And after hearing uh, some one of the students talking about being in part of the physics department I realized that if I left and went home right away and set up my projection system, I might be able to see this on a screen better than, uh, you know, fighting 50 other people to look through a scope. Got in the elevator with this guy and said, are you you part of this? He said, yeah. I said, someone should project an image onto a screen. His response, oh, that'd be kind of hard. Mr. McMillan? No, sir, that would be incorrect. It's very easy to project an image of the sun onto a screen. Even really cheap telescopes generally have equipment that allow you to do so. When you do that, if you've got a good scope, you can make a nice big image. Everybody can see it at once. But anyway, as I say, nice idea. Hope in our third segment today we'll be talking to uh, my fellow eclipse chaser, Jerry Rose, about uh, the joys of these sorts of celestial phenomenon. If you checked it out, and I hope you did, you'll note that Venus looked pretty teeny on the surface of the Sun. I did go rushing home because, uh, although the full eclipse was not visible in California, the beginning of it was, and I wanted to see for my oh, for myself that uh, black drop effect that vexed observers back in the 1600s and 1700s, trying to trying to measure that moment when Venus was completely encircled by the Sun. And sure enough, when you're trying to make that call and decide, is it or isn't it? There is a bit of darkness that tends to join up the disk of, of Venus to the, the sun's limb, and it makes it very difficult to decide when it when it is contained within the area of the sun. So um, I sympathize with Captain Cook and others back in Tahiti in the 1700s kind of say, well, when, when do you think it was there? As we mentioned some weeks back, the imprecision uh, in that was what prevented scientists from being able to determine how far away Venus was from the Earth. They just couldn't decide, uh, you know, when it was that it had crossed over into being in front of the Sun. Seems like a little minor problem, but uh, not so. In fact, Venus transits have, I think, thwarted scientists up till maybe this very transit, uh, who are trying to get good, meaningful science out of it. This episode that took place this week will allow scientists around the world to measure with great, great precision how much of the sun's light was reduced by Venus being in front of it. This will allow us to better calibrate instruments uh, like the Kepler spacecraft looking out uh, to try and find subtle dimmings in other stars to see when planets are passing in front of the disks of those stars. There an awful lot of planets found that way, and we're going to talk a little about that in our, in our third segment as well. And hopefully these recalibrations will just allow us to find even more exoplanets. And just one little extra bit of uh, editorializing. If you were reading that story on the web, which, you know, one of those perennial stories that pop up every so often about how the Milky Way is doomed. The Andromeda galaxy is set to crash into our own galaxy, the Milky Way, in a few billion years, four to be exact, which will cause a destruction of both galaxies. Well, no. We look out into deep space and we see galaxies smashing into one another all the time. The stars in the galaxy are so bloody far apart, you can generally shove one galaxy right through another and stars don't even hit one another. Well, they're bound to once in a while. If you've got billions of stars at risk, you know, some of them are going to collide. But for the most part, the galaxies just uh, interact with each other gravitationally, twist themselves around in a knot, and uh, become one large galaxy instead of two separate. In fact, in recent years, we've come to appreciate that our own Milky Way has apparently devoured multiple dwarf galaxies, which we've now incorporated into, uh, you know, the larger entity that we call the Milky Way. But uh, anyway, you know what? If I'm wrong and the two galaxies are destroyed, you got four billion years to, you know, avoid difficulties. So, you know, see what you can do to... uh, Workout plan B. All right, our quote of the day comes from Ernest Hemingway, who said, Critics are men who watch a battle from a high place, then come down and shoot the survivors. Our quote of the day comes from the late Tony Curtis, who once said, I wouldn't be caught dead marrying a woman old enough to be my wife. A joke of the day comes from Conan O'Brien, who said, A new survey just came out. and finds that sex is better when you're on vacation. At least that's what my wife emailed me from the Bahamas. Our stat of the day is that of the 375 tons of heroin grown for export in Afghanistan each year, I think they meant opium when they said that, only 3.5% is intercepted by Afghan authorities according to the United Nations. And I think we ought to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Notes of the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for political correctness with the news that Oregon officials have told the Sillits tribe of Native Americans that they can no longer call their school sports team the Warriors because such names are offensive. The state ban on Indian-themed mascots, said a tribal spokeswoman, was created by people who have no knowledge of Indian communities and does nothing to address the real issues of racism. And Although Mr. McMillan admits to once being one of the Hiram Johnson warriors, he's not sure whether politically correct zealots have denied the school that nickname. We'll have to look into that. It kind of reminds me of what George Carlin once said about the fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Isn't that just a little bit too honest? I can tell you, when I used to work for Indian Health as a contract doctor down in Gallup, New Mexico, I noticed that an awful lot of Native Americans proudly wore Cleveland Indians caps and uh, Washington Redskins jackets and occasional paraphernalia from the Atlanta Braves and, oddly enough, also the Dallas Cowboys. So, yeah, I think that's taken it a bit far. But it was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for charity after motorist John Davis of Ohio apparently tried to hand two $1 bills to a wheelchair-bound panhandler, but dropped one onto the ground. Minutes later, police gave Davis a $500 littering ticket. His offense was listed as, throw paper out the window. Ouch. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for Facebook. No, we're not referring to the IPO, but the fact that a 17-year-old Australian girl got the idea that she should post a picture on Facebook of a large stack of cash, apparently her grandmother's life savings. Following this, two masked men armed with a knife and club promptly showed up at the girl's house. Noted the week, since the cash, luckily, was elsewhere, they robbed the girl's mom and stole some property. which we would add, as a public service announcement, Please, if you must go on Facebook, do not post pictures of your grandmother's life savings in cash. And we think what we'll do is just, you know, chalk it up to the only in California file, the fact that our governor, Jerry Brown, apparently commented last week that he derives, quote, a lot of psychic income, unquote, from being governor and would run for the job even if it went unpaid. So asked, want to ask, Mr. McMillan, do you feel you get a lot of psychic energy from doing this program? Thank you. I know we don't get to use the theremin as a musical instrument very often on this show, but it's nice to have the opportunity. And another item here, I'm not sure this comes from, also from the only in California file, or or perhaps from a file labeled, you know, what's next from our disgrace of a legal system. But uh, here's the piece from the Sacramento Bee, dated May 24th. Dateline, Delray Oaks, California. When Safeway meat clerk Ryan Young jumped from behind his counter to help a pregnant woman being kicked by her boyfriend, he didn't know that he'd suddenly become jobless and a national hero at the same time. On April 21st, while Young was working a shift at the Delray Oaks Safeway, he saw the woman and her boyfriend arguing. When the man got physical with the woman, Young came to her defense according to a statement he gave to police. After the brouhaha ended, Young's employer saw the incident on surveillance video and suspended Young without pay, citing Safeway's zero-tolerance policy for workplace violence. We've said it before in this program, and I think we should probably say it again. A zero-tolerance policy for anything probably should be better referred to as a zero-brains policy. But note of the piece, a sea of support rose for Young, starting with his union, the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 5. The union challenged Young's suspension, but the company refused to budge. Meanwhile, word spread rapidly of Young's heroic actions after he appeared on national television. In response to his suspension, police began boycotting and picketing outside the Monterey County store in support of the clerk. The Delray Oaks police chief commended Young for his actions. More than 180,000 people signed an online petition expressing outrage at Safeway's action on change.org. Safeway relented last Wednesday and reinstated Young with back pay. I also want to note a piece by Ryan Lillis in the Sacramento Bee about Sutter's Landing Park. There was an effort afoot to put some solar collectors out there on what, you know, is a... uh, basically a landfill, no longer an active landfill, but a a landfill just the same, and uh, this has run into problems because uh, these solar collectors will apparently cover two and a half acres near the parking lot, and uh, it's feared will interfere with the ability of the Swainson's hawks to catch field mice. I find this story of special interest because I have hawks nesting in my tree. I, I don't live very far at all from the Sutter's Landing Park. And although, like everybody else, I'd like to see more clean energy, we realize that we must realize that things like solar, wind, and water power do come with environmental costs, which is one reason that uh, we think that nuclear power deserves a good look. Yes. Plants have been poorly operated. Yes, it's sort of an extension of our military industry. Yes, it can be done very badly, but boy, oh boy, what are we going to do to provide energy that uh, is carbon neutral? It's a topic we'll return to in the future. And I do want to quote from an interesting little piece of writing from the Sacramento Bee Names and Faces section about a, a Latter-day Beach Boy tour. It's actually a reprint from an L.A. Times article about, uh, well, it started off talking about a Beach Boys concert in Chula Vista uh, late last month. The Times writer noted that when it came to the sound of Brian Wilson's uh, signature falsetto, which so famously launched the group's distinctive harmonies in the musical stratosphere, the glorious high notes uh, currently were not coming from Brian Wilson. Now age 69, they were emanating from the mouth of Jeffrey Foskett, A 56-year-old guitarist standing a few feet behind and strategically between them, Wilson and founding member Mike Love. They note that the Beach Boys reunion tour was the first time that Wilson, Love, age 71, Al Jardine, 69, and David Marks, age 63, have toured together since the 1960s. Marks the Beach Boys' 50th anniversary and their first album with Wilson in 20 years. This tour marks the Beach Boys' 50th anniversary and their first album with Brian Wilson in 23 years. It's titled, That's Why God Made the Radio. Peace notes that since Wilson doesn't quite have the voice or relationship with the group that he once had, the ability of the Beach Boys to tour depends heavily on Foskett's voice and the role he plays connecting Wilson with his former bandmates. What I find intriguing is that Foskett was no different than thousands of other musicians who toil in anonymity when he and his cover band were banging out Beach Boys' hits in the late 70s. In a moment of serendipity, Mike Love heard the amateur musician playing in a Santa Barbara band and hired him. Said Foskett, for a kid who grew up loving the Beach Boys' music, he felt like a former Little Leaguer who got a call to report to Dodger Stadium. Said Foskett, that's exactly what it's like and probably is rare too. How many amateur athletes turn pro and how many of the thousands of musicians Tens of thousands of musicians in the Los Angeles area are going to get into a band that they really loved and tour with them. Peace notes that the Beach Boys formed in Hawthorne in 1960 with brothers Brian, Carl, and Dennis Wilson and their cousin Mike Love and two pals Al Jardine and David Marks. Marks left in 1963 and Brian Wilson quit touring two years later to focus on uh, on work in the recording studios. As you probably know, the... Beach Boys' creative leader also kind of went MIA in the 70s and 80s. And of course, in 1983, Dennis Wilson drowned. Carl Wilson died of a cancer in 1999. Brian Wilson spent much of the 70s and 80s in seclusion, emerging only occasionally to perform with or without the other Beach Boys until he mounted a return to the spotlight in 1991. His once exceptionally pure and high voice, however, reflected the ravages of what he'd been through. The trust that Brian Wilson has in... Jeffrey Foskett, musically and personally, is a crucial element of the current tour. In some ways, he's closer to the group's creative leader than anyone except Wilson's wife of 17 years, Melinda. David Leaf, described as a writer and documentarian uh, of the Beach Boys, he wrote the 1978 biography The Beach Boys and the California Myth, said that uh, (laughs) Brian Wilson's solos as being performed by Jeffrey Foskett showed that he had the hardest job I've ever seen a singer pull off. Those high parts are the ones that go straight to your gut, the ones that hit you in the heart, and he sings them perfectly. So we'd like to say uh, well done to an amateur who's made the big time. Let's take a break. Listen to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. what's Oh. Sí. Sí.